0: Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. The interviews for this podcast were conducted on the 27th and 30th of October 2015. This podcast series is a product of the Committee on International Environmental Law of the American Branch of the International Law Association and is co-sponsored by the University of South Dakota School of Law. My name is Mariana Dellinger. I'm an associate professor of law for the University of South Dakota School of Law. I research and write on issues of national and international environmental law and how these issues intersect with business aspects. Today, you'll hear from law professors Joseph De La Pena, Joel Mintz, and Alex Wong. Professor Penna is a professor of law at Villanova Law School. His research focuses on water management, national and international, as well as international and comparative law. He has previously taught at several universities in the United States and abroad. He's the only person ever to be a Fulbright senior lecturer in law in both the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China. Professor Della Penna has also served as a consultant to numerous private entities and foreign governments, including the World Bank, the Harry S. Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, the People's Republic of China, as well as the Republic of China. Professor Mintz is a professor of law at NOVA Southeastern Law Center, where he has taught courses related to environmental law since 1983. Before entering academia, Professor Mintz was an enforcement attorney and chief attorney with the EPA in Chicago and Washington, D.C. Widely viewed as one of the nation's leading legal academic experts on environmental enforcement, Joel Mintz has testified before the United States Congress on the subject and published three books and numerous book contributions and law review articles regarding this topic. Professor Mintz is also the author or co-author of six other books regarding environmental law, sustainability, and municipal debt financing. He is a recipient of several awards for his work as an attorney, teacher, and scholar. Alex Wang is an assistant professor of law at UCLA School of Law. His research focuses on Chinese law, politics and environmental regulation. Professor Wang previously served as senior attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council in Beijing and as the founding director of the Natural Resources Defense Council's China Environmental Law and Governance Project. In this capacity, he worked with China's government agencies legal community and environmental groups to improve the environmental rule of law and strengthen the role of the public in environmental protection. He helped to establish the Natural Resource Defense Council's Beijing office in 2006. Professor Wang was a fellow of the National Committee on United States-China Relations from 2008 to 2010 and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the advisory board To the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. Thank you for being on the program, Professor Della Pena.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Professor, it's been said a lot recently that China is finally appearing to be willing to undertake a so-called war against pollution via some tougher environmental laws and better enforcement. But do you think, from your experience, that there's any realistic hope that the many environmental problems in China will be solved soon?
1: Uh, no, I don't think they'll be solved soon. Uh, I, I, th- I think my my concern is that, um, especially when you're speaking with people who are uh, from outside of China, is we, we fall uh, prey to what I call a lawyer's uh, delusion. That is the idea that if a law is passed that seems to adequately address a problem, uh, that the problem is solved. Uh, In China, passing laws is actually relatively easy, but getting them enforced on any topic is in fact very difficult. It's not part of the Chinese cultural tradition to take what we think of as laws seriously. That is formal rules enacted by the public authorities. Now, I won't try to go into several thousand years of Chinese history to explain why they came out that way. But they've never taken them very seriously. And and in the environmental field it's pretty easy to show that they never that they haven't up till now. Um, if you uh look back over the last 35 years, roughly, when since they first began passing environmental laws, those environmental laws have often read uh like very good laws and yet they've rarely made any real difference. And the question is, now these recent laws passed within the past year, uh, will they make a difference? Well, maybe. But there are lots of countervailing forces that might prevent that. First is the cultural tradition I've referred to of not taking these laws seriously. Secondly, everything is negotiable, in other words. Uh, even the most rigid law, except something that threatens the survival of the Communist Party or the control of the Communist Party. That's not negotiable, but everything else is. Uh, secondly, uh, historically, the last talking the last 35 years, uh, environmental laws are passed at the center in Beijing, but enforcement was left entirely up to local authorities, and the local authorities, whether they're in the government or in the party, uh, made career, successful careers, let's put it that way, out of economic growth, and nothing else seemed to count. And so the environmental rules were in fact never enforced. Uh, now, supposedly, the new laws give greater enforcement power to the Ministry of the Environment in Beijing and other central authorities. And if they are able to use those powers successfully, that will make a difference. But again, there'll be strong resistance to that because the local officials, when you talk about personal success and career success, professional success, uh, it's all about the economy and not about the environment. And they will resist and they have more power to resist than you might imagine.
0: So you think that for those officials, the money will be more important than the environment? Do you also think, though, that there might be a shift in awareness in China for these issues? For instance, it's been said that after the U.S. embassy in Beijing made the air quality meter available to the general public, a lot more people became aware of just how bad the air pollution was, at least in the Beijing area. So with that awareness of perhaps perhaps a larger segment of the general population, do you think a shift might happen in that strategy?
1: Well, actually, I think what made people in Beijing and some other places in China aware of just how bad the air quality was, was the Beijing Olympics, which uh, some of the venues were outside of Beijing. And and in all of those, the government took rather drastic steps, basically shutting down the economy and taking half the cars off the roads in order to clear, clean the air for the games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and suddenly people realized that the sky is blue, but it's yeah. not a dirt gray. Uh, and yet within a few weeks after the games ended, uh, the air quality had gone back to the previous quality. And that's when people began grumbling in Beijing and in Qingdao and some other cities where, where various parts of the games were held about, you know, why can't we have better air all the time? The U.S. Embassy making its uh, data available certainly reinforced that. Uh, but this was, bear, bear in mind, seven years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. The
1: World Health Organization just issued a report earlier this year saying over 4,000 people a day die in China from air pollution, hmm. air pollution-related diseases. Now, if you multiply that by 365 days, mm-hmm. you are talking about somewhere close to a million and a half people a year. That's not negligible, even in China.
0: Right. It certainly is not But can one hope that the awareness, no matter where it comes from, might trickle out into the regions and even into the career awareness of some of these career politicians so that they would see that from the general public and for their own sake, it might be time to rethink their old strategies of growth first? Uh, I
1: I would have thought that
0: uh, six months ago.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: because the Chinese economy seemed to have weathered the economic crisis of Mm -hmm. 2008 quite nicely, Mm -hmm. Uh, and growth was still proceeding at what, uh, according to the public statements of the Communist Party at least, were acceptable levels, but in the last six months, the Chinese economy has taken a sharp decline, and uh, rising unemployment, uh, collapsing stock market, uh, various other indicia. Manufacturing is, uh, down as a, as a, as a uh, total output of the factories in the country is going down, not up. Exports are going down, not up. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, bear in mind, uh, many, some of these data, some of these are talking about rates of growth rather than actual amounts. But in terms of manufacturing and exports, we're talking about actual gross amounts are going down. Mm-hmm. Um, China, with all of this, has a growth rate estimated. No one can say for sure because statistics from China are not entirely reliable. Uh, but it has an estimated growth rate around six percent a year, which in the United States would be having people would have people dancing in the streets. But in China, this is considered an abysmal performance, mm-hmm. and the trend line is down. And the government has begun to take uh, some fairly drastic steps to try and reverse that. Including uh, pumping uh, uh, billions of renminbi, the currency, into Mm the uh, stock markets uh, and lowering the interest rates, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to coerce, and coerce is the right word, banks into giving loans that they don't want to give, various steps to keep the economy growing. Well, think about that. Uh, Do you really think in this economic climate, that the central government is going to tolerate anything that strikes it as uh, significantly curtailing economic activity, like stricter enforcement of environmental laws. Uh, Maybe that will happen. Personally, I doubt it.
0: But to play devil's advocate, I know some people have argued that growth can be reached not just by using the business as, as usual method, but by embracing some newer technologies and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, growth and environmental protection doesn't need to be mutually exclusive. You, however, seem to be saying that you don't think that China is ready to see it from that point of view quite yet. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I I just don't think that they're ready to accept, uh, at this point, anything that smacks of curtailing economics. They are certainly pushing, for example, industries to develop uh, alternative uh, sources of... uh, uh, Mm
0: non-renewable
1: uh that alternatives to non-renewable energy production wind and solar although the production of wind turbines and production of solar panels itself creates pollution the Mm -hmm. energy once those are in place may not be polluting but you know that infrastructure doesn't come without an environmental cost right uh and so but that but that doesn't mean that they're going to be phasing out coal anytime soon. Coal, of course, is the largest. Coal and gasoline for automobiles, the two largest uh, sources of air pollution. Um, and water is in just as bad a shape. as of course, where I focus my attention. You can't avoid the air. Right. Right. So I I, I go to Beijing. Uh, I went to Beijing in July. I'm going back in December. Every time I go, one of the questions I always ask myself is, why don't I just take up smoking? I mean, I can't hurt my lungs any more than just (laughs) breathing around here. Uh, But I don't. I'm not a smoker. Um, But you certainly can't avoid it. You can see it. You can see what you're breathing. But I focus on the water, and the water is in as bad or worse shape than the air. They started what's called the the South to North Water Diversion around 2004, 2005, the idea to bring massive amounts of water from central China, the Yangtze River Basin, to the north, to the Yellow River Basin, the Huanghe, as they say in Chinese, and to Beijing. And one of the reasons was to provide water for the Olympics. Well, they're still not using the water from that system. The system is largely built... Uh, But they just realized that before they could use the water, they would have to build massive purification plants because the water is so polluted. Uh, And they're doing that. Well, you know, that produces a kind of economic growth. But it's not an economic growth that uh, speaks of a better approach to the environment. They should be... uh, trying to you prevent the pollution in the first place instead of pumping it. What they en- ended up doing is building uh, these massive canals and tunnels and building a series of purification plants because it c- picks up pollution along the way as it travels from south to north. And so they purify it repeatedly because they also divert it out to be used repeatedly along the way. Um it's just, or you look at the, the, three, the much vaunted Three Gorges Dam. The reservoir is a cesspool.
0: So, what causes this cesspool of overall pollution? Is it chemicals? Is it air pollution? Is it all of the above? Or-
1: all of the above. Mine. First of all, I actually was, uh, at the request of the Chinese government, put together a team of seven American lawyers to go to China in 1992 to do an environmental assessment as it were uh, of the propo- then proposed three gorges dam now as it turned out while we were there doing our assessment they actually voted to authorize it so it was clear that our assessment wouldn't make any difference to the whether the project was done or not i i, I think they were hoping we would give them a report they could show to international financial sources uh... who were balking at the environmental cost of the project but in fact, our report wasn't useful for that because it was very critical. But one result of that is I inspected the Three Gorges area and I inspected the proposed uh, the the plans for the dam, including a, a uh, three-kilometer-long scale model of the river and the proposed dam, uh, before they actually broke ground to build the thing and talked to the people about it. Uh, they were going to end up with a... Um, and they did end up with a re- reservoir that's still about forty feet deep, three hundred miles behind the dam. It's it's a huge reservoir, and they flooded out three medium-sized cities by Chinese standards. That means a million to two million people, plus many many smaller towns and villages, uh, with the reservoir. And so, how much cleaning up did they do? None.
0: Mm-hmm. And why is that? Is it to save money, or is it because of a lack of knowledge?
1: Partly to save money. Partly, it wasn't just wasn't uh, an issue for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't didn't think it was important. Uh, their their thinking about environmental questions was remarkably uninformed, and there's no good reason for that. I mean, they should have known, but right. it just didn't seem important to them. Mm-hmm. And so you had. Cities with piles of coal and piles of salt and piles of chemicals next to factories and the factories as well as the piles just covered with water. No, even I mean, it was, even from a resource, rational resource use, it was a waste of money because those piles at least could have been taken away and used somewhere else. But they just flooded them out right. and sewage is dumped into the reservoir from the existing or new cities and towns were built along the way. Not to mention the fact that uh, they had not anticipated that water logging the sides of the canyon would result in the collapse of canyon walls into the reservoir, which would carry, uh, at the very least, uh, large amounts of, of stone and rock and earth, but also carries all the pollutants that are in those stone, uh, in that stones and rock and earth into the reservoir, so it's become a cesspool.
0: Has that situation changed? I think the year you mentioned was 1992. How do you see that development now? Is that situation getting better? Well, better? I mean,
1: this is, this is uh, carried forward with the, the, the North to South Water Project, which mm-hmm. they are still working on. And which, you know, as I say, they, they ended up realizing that they're going to have to purify the water. But the thought of keeping the water more or less clean to begin with this doesn't seem to have been on their radar.
0: And still is not...
1: You know that's an ongoing project. Now maybe it will be in the future. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: They enacted uh, four or five years ago. They enacted a a, a, um, environmental impact assessment requirement. Uh, They don't enforce it very well. Some major project go forward without anyone doing an environmental impact, even though the law says they have to. It's required. Other projects. They do the environmental impact and then ignore it, environmental impact assessment, and then they ignore it.
0: Uh, So that paints a fairly grim picture of the situation, both as regards air and water. Mm -hmm. What do you think that it'll take for them to change that situation for the better in the hopefully near future?
1: Well, obviously uh, pressure from the grassroots can make some difference, but less than you would think. According to the Chinese government's own statistics, there are about 300 mass incidents a day Hmm. in China. Now, a mass incident is three or more people doing something in public that the government doesn't like, Mm -hmm. like protesting, like having a strike, like launching a petition drive, all kinds of things. and the Chinese government, according to their own statistics, has these massive numbers. Now, there are three, three primary causes of this, of these mass incidents. One is labor disputes. Second one is land disputes, where the government decides to dispossess typically farmers, but sometimes town dwellers, city dwellers, of their homes with little or no compensation so that they can use the land to make money. And the money, to some extent, is profitable for the city or the municipality, whatever, the county, where the project uh, develops. In other words, the government benefits, but a lot of it ends up in the government officials' bank accounts. Corruption is a massive problem in China. And mm-hmm. and that's not going to go away with a new law on the environment. The third source of uh, mass incidents are environmental protests. And if the environmental protests are... by Middle-class people in a large city like Beijing or Shanghai can make a difference,
0: mm.
1: particularly if they're careful enough and middle-class people are savvy enough that they can do this, if they are careful enough to couch it in a way that seems non-threatening to the government. right. right. Uh, people in the countryside or lower-class people are not, usually not so careful,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and they uh, tend to get stepped on by the government rather than have a, a positive impact. So, grassroots activism can help somewhat, but not as much as one might hope.
0: Right, given the strength of the government and the continued ways of governance in China. Seeing this from an international point of view, what do you think about China's possible adoption and implementation of a new climate change treaty? China has already announced that it'll try to peak its emissions by 2030 with best efforts to do it earlier. So do you think that there is any hope for an upcoming new climate change treaty with China as an active participant in just about a month from now?
1: Oh, I, I, I think uh, a good chance that they'll sign a treaty, if, 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 particularly if the United States is able and willing to sign it, uh, which is, uh, I, I think is still an open question for the United States. Uh, but, um, again, signing it and implementing it are, uh, with China, it, it, it's all, to some extent that's true in the United States as well, but to China in particular, that's a, those are two different questions. China has signed a number of human rights treaties that the United States has never signed. Uh, and yet I would think that the, in general the United States human rights record is better than the Chinese. Uh, so, just because they sign treaties doesn't necessarily mean they'll do what they say. Uh, it will be imperative if they sign the treaty, the tri- treaty have a mechanism, uh, at the very least, for shaming violators. The Chinese are sensitive to shaming, uh, but uh, and, you know, ideally, stronger mechanisms for enforcement. And that's what you really have to check. On on any treaty that comes out of Paris is is what are the mechanisms of enforcement, whether it's shaming or something else. If the, right. if the mechanisms are too weak, uh, it won't it won't accomplish what it wants, especially in a place like China.
0: So it might seem that you're saying that China may adopt various international climate change obligations for potentially image reasons, but that in actuality, such obligations may not have any effect. This compares to the approach you said they are taking in relation to their national legislation. Why then do you think they adopt these laws at all? Is it just a matter of image, or is there something else at play?
1: Well, uh, partly a, in, in the case of, of uh, the domestic laws and maybe the international treaty as well, it's for d- 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 image among the domestic middle class. is part of it, uh, but on the other hand. Uh, yeah, you know, the Chinese may very well think that by 2030 we will be so far along on the renewable energy sources that we won't need coal we can start to phase it out because they've promised at this point I don't know what the final treaty will say but they promised at this point only to peak by 2030 and right. the phase out will then begin. Right. Um and, and so they may think that they'll be able to do that. Right. Now, the question becomes, what happens in 2030? Um, maybe yes, maybe no, I don't know. Uh, all I'm saying is that one needs to be very cautious about agreements or, or legislation in China and not assume that just because they've signed a treaty or they've enacted a statute that when you read it seems to solve the problem, don't assume that they have, in fact, uh, made much progress. They might. I hope they do. Um, but I'll remain a, something of a skeptic.
0: That sounds good, Professor Delapena. Thank you so much for your opinions. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So, Professors Wong and Mintz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. There are uh, undoubtedly still many environmental problems in China, both as regards air, land and water and so forth. Uh, Professor Wang, some specialists have expressed concern that in spite of many promising new environmental laws, China may actually not enforce such laws. At least not if this is going to be further slowing the economic growth in China. What do you think about this issue?
3: Yeah, So I, I think, um, you know, China's environmental problems uh, have been uh, extremely serious for a long time. You know, China's been uh, growing uh, extremely quickly over the last 30-odd uh, years, and uh, it's brought a lot of uh, high levels of pollution and high levels of carbon emissions, high levels of uh, sort of resource degradation. Uh, and these problems have are, are extremely serious. They're hurting the health of a lot of people. Um, and so uh, the question is... Uh, uh, what's what's China doing about it, and, and will those things work? So we've we've seen, um, particularly in the last decade, uh, a lot of, of environmental laws being passed, uh, and uh, you know people are right to be skeptical about whether these will work. But I think uh, some of the skeptics have sort of not been uh, paying attention to potential opportunities, is is what I would say. I think uh, things are. Uh, there are a variety of conditions on the ground that are shifting, uh, such that we don't know if the old problems will continue as they always have. The, the problems in environmental enforcement will always continue, uh, or whether they'll they'll change to- towards uh, something new. So, um, so uh, you know, I, we can get into more details, but I think overall, you know, my my is that yes, in the past, uh, environmental enforcement has been extremely weak. Uh, it's partly in, uh, institutional problems, but it's also a matter of political priority. I think that political priority has changed. I think the institutions, their attempts to strengthen those institutions, and I think uh, there's a lot up in the air right now about whether these things will work.
0: Do you have some actual examples of why uh, why you have reason to be more pos- uh, positive that some things are changing for the better? Uh, what gives you reason to to think so?
3: Yeah. So, so I guess um, you know the, the first question for me was always you know. Are people within the Chinese state interested in environmental uh, regulation? I, I think it's true that the the top priorities of leaders have, have for a long time been economic growth and maintaining social stability. And so uh, the, the old way of thinking was that, you know, if we increase GDP as fast as possible, that's the key to, to sort of national strength and for social stability. People have jobs and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, what What happened over the last 15 years was that the pollution that emerged from the economic growth was so bad that it was starting to trigger increasing numbers of uh, complaints, protests, lawsuits, and it was starting to have a real uh, detrimental impact on, on social stability. And it was starting to be seen as hurting economic growth. So start, studies started to come out. Um, in the late uh, 90s from the World Bank and others about the, the economic costs of environmental growth and I think so leaders were sort of looking at this mix of things you know there was there was sort of citizen unrest because of pollution as well as sort of the the uh, people studying the issue the academics and this and the researchers saying look this is also going to limit your ability to, to, to do economic growth so I think there were people who, thought that as a matter of priority, it was important to, to try to get control of of environmental um, uh, regulation. And so what, one of the things that we we saw that was an initial signal to me that something was changing was um, started about 10 years ago in in China's uh, sort of um, five-year plan system. So the, they have these five-year plans that are uh, part of the, you know, the old kind of uh, sort of communist, so, Soviet, Leninist way of doing uh, of, of governance, and in these plans they set targets for all of the uh, the bureaucrats within the system of you know, to sort of signal what's important. And in 2006, they uh, increased the uh, the priority of a number of environmental and energy efficiency targets. So I thought, well, the, you know, this seems like something different than before. They'd always had environmental targets, but they were always low priority and always exceeded and never met in the past. And so uh, starting about 10 years ago, there was this this effort to sort of elevate targets and to meet those targets. And then in conjunction with that, there's been uh, sort of... um, the uh, passage of um, a new uh, environment protection law recently, that's another example of, of something new that's come forward, and that has had a, a range of, um, of uh, a stronger enforcement uh, provisions, higher penalties, uh, and importantly, uh, greater appeal to sort of public supervision, so greater transparency and uh, inviting the public to put pressure on polluters to change.
0: Right, so sort of pressure from the uh, bottom up, but also maybe still a little bit of resistance from the top down. Do you think, or do you think maybe the top government might not only see this as an economic risk, but also see the economic potential um, in some of these new environmental, uh, environmentally sound ways? Yes,
3: yeah, so I think the what, at least from the top, from the top, is the the idea seems to be that. Look, we can have we can have all of these things through green kind of green development. We we can have economic growth, we can have social stability, uh, and we can achieve that through this kind of green development model. So there's been a lot of rhetoric about uh, economic transformation, uh, meaning moving away from uh, this reliance on heavy in- industry, steel, coal, cement, and these types of things. Okay, and heading towards you know, high tech and and uh, and services and that kind of thing. so there's an interest in in uh, using green development to to transform the economy.
0: right, right. So earlier we heard that Professor Della Penna was skeptical about whether uh, those programs will will actually be implemented right now uh, or in the immediate future or whether it might be something further down the road. Professor Mintz, what do you think about that? are you are you skeptical towards what we're hearing here?
2: Well, I do have some skepticism, yes. I am encouraged by some of what uh, Alex has just presented. I think uh, there are, uh, apparently there are some real shifts going on on the ground. And um, uh, other things that are going on include some anti-corruption efforts, which could be helpful uh, in uh, in solving some of the environmental problems. And there was also the disaster in Shenzhen, uh, uh involving uh, the storage of hazardous chemicals that uh, got an awful lot of attention, from what I understand, within China as well as, uh, of course, around the world. Um, I've also heard that there is more enforcement regarding larger, larger uh, companies that can afford to uh, put in pollution controls. I'm skeptical, though, with regard to what's being done with regard to mid-size and smaller companies in China. Um, I'm not sure that there's much of an effort to ask for retrofitting of uh, pollution control technology, which does cost money. And, um, I, you know, I think it's it's very much up in the air whether the enforcement efforts against larger companies will take into account The need to retrofit uh, ongoing pollution from smaller operations all around China. Um, So uh, there are lots of unanswered questions, and yeah, I do have some uh, skepticism. Um, um, I, you know, I'm I'm pleased with some of the overall trends, but um, you know, there's it's easier to uh, talk the talk than to walk the talk, and we've certainly in the past seen an awful lot of uh, of rhetoric coming out of the Chinese government, but very little impact in terms of the uh, on the ground uh, situation. So I think you know, it remains to be seen how that's going to go.
0: And this also, uh, Professor Wong, raises the question of, uh, as Professor Mintz was commenting on, what about retrofitting technology? What about the existing old technology? If China is to uh, improve its ways, environmentally speaking, can they afford to replace existing factories and industry with more environmentally friendly technology? Or is this a matter of waiting for old technology simply to be phased out as it dies uh, and then hopefully in the longer run getting uh, better Better technologies.
3: Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I, so that, that that's a great question, and I, I think the, the initial thing I would say, the, to step back for a second, is that you know economists talk about a, a Kuznets curve, right? In in mm-hmm. sort of developing countries, that and it's sort of an upside down U, where pollution increases initially as companies are developing countries are growing, but then when they reach a certain level of economic development citizens start to demand more environmental amenities and uh, they have more money to do environmental protection. And, and so pollution starts to go down at higher levels of economic growth. So so one thing is that you potentially could be seeing on the ground, those things that happen at that point at the top of the curve, when pollution begins to turn down. So we don't, we don't know that that's going to happen. We don't know when, you know, the shape of the curve exactly when pollution will turn down but right. you know so there, there are trends right now that they're 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 being pushed by policy and just happening as a matter of economic uh, development that uh, affect what you just said so uh, one of the policies has been to shut down small uh, plants and consolidate industry into larger uh, larger facilities so we, we see this in developed countries that there's industrial consolidation right that's, that's official national policy and uh, it's been sort of happening in different industries. So, in the power sector, for example, there's been a policy of massive shutdowns of of older, smaller plants, heavy investment in the big national, state-owned companies, and giving them money to build new plants. So, there's been tremendous turnover. So, I think the what, what's happening now is not just you know regulators going to a given plant and saying, look, you have to install. Uh, a pollution control equipment, and some of them won't, won't do it, and then and so they'll just keep polluting. I think some of those plants are actually getting shut down, and because it's it's sort of that stage of development, some of these plants just can't economically s- sustain it. And in terms of the balance of economic interests, there's sort of other more powerful corporate interests that would are perfectly happy to step in and take the place of those smaller plants. And so it's not just the regulators, it's not just the policymakers, but there's also this kind of Economic push and pull, where uh, there there are people who will benefit economically from the um, from these environmental policies as well.
0: And that's interesting, because as from a lawyer's point of view, I think we often think about regulations, you know, sticks and carrots from the legal point of view, but you're saying you think that in China, the, the economic factor is equally important. Uh, what about a problem that, uh, known as the lawyer's fallacy, as Professor de la Pena talked about? In other words, the fallacy that setting aside the economic benefits, but sort of a false hope that simply because some of these new laws we've been talking about are passed, on the ground solutions uh, will actually be solved. Do you think that that might factor into it as well
3: well i mean i i think that's uh you know that's something always to be cautious about if you're a policymaker right i mean i think we all recognize that passing putting laws on the books does not mean enforcement in practice right i, I mean that's right. I, I wouldn't call it a fallacy it's just sort of a, a fact of of policymaking. Um, you make policy and then you have to worry about enforcement. So right. I think the good thing is that there's been policymaking and now the challenge is on the enforcement end. So uh, to say that, uh, you know, to take the position that it's not going to change and it will continue to be bad, it's, it's perfectly plausible. I mean, there's all sorts of signs of cheating and and local protectionism and these types of things—that's uh, that's as it has been for quite a long time. Uh, you know, my own, my own interest is seeing the sort of cracks in that wall, and and you do see cracks. And so, right. uh, my interest is how do you enlarge those cracks and how do you kind of push in those areas rather than focusing on them, the in what my view is, is the old story, which which certainly exists.
0: True, true. And speaking of uh, new laws and new enforcements and so forth, uh, this past summer, American media broadly reported that China's top court has ruled that all polluters will be liable for any damage they have on the environment, even if they do not breach any regulations. Uh, But you have a slightly different take on that issue, I've noticed. Can you explain what uh, what it was that happened uh, by the top court and what the effects are?
3: Oh, uh, so I think that was not actually a change from before. You know, it was that was uh, a document that, you know, Supreme People's Court in China will issue sort of regulation-like documents. what uh, you know, this was not a ruling on any particular case like okay. we would ex- we would see from the U.S. Supreme Court. And they were sort of consolidating past experience and putting it into a document that would guide lower courts. And and the idea is simply that. Look if, if a factory does even if a factory is in compliance with the, with the law, if they can be shown to have committed a tort against uh, somebody or damaged property or something that they can still be liable for that, and it's, in essence, the legal compliance is not a defense to, to, to tort.
0: Right. Okay. So that,
3: that's all, all that means. Yeah.
0: That's all that means. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, other uh, reports also have uh, pointed out that uh, in order to stipulate for polluting enterprises uh, d- uh, to stop polluting, they're relying a lot in China still on naming and shaming the polluters. What do you see about, uh, uh, or what do you think about that, Professor Wong? Do you think that's enough in China, or uh, is that going to be coupled with other sort of more traditional uh, enforcement mechanisms?
3: Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think I think that piece of it is a really interesting piece. You know, I think um, in the past, the problem was that, that the identity of polluters was always kept hidden. So there wasn't any sort of naming and shaming. Mm-hmm. Now there's a push for greater transparency. And some of the regulators, if the regulators are inclined to do enforcement, they, this can be a helpful tool, like it is in other countries, that mm-hmm. it sort of generates public pressure. It can give the um, the regulators the backing to sort of say, look, I have to do something against these facilities, and it also can lead to factories just simply uh, changing their behavior themselves because they realize they're exposed and they want to avoid more serious um, pressure from enforcers or from citizens. Um, but but as you as you suggest in your question, I, you know that isn't enough. There has to be uh, there it can't just be sort of disclosing the identity. It has right. there has to right. be a real regulatory apparatus. And the environmental uh, regulatory apparatus has always been extremely weak, under-resourced, understaffed, insufficient legal resources, and that still—that's been improving a little bit, but it still needs to change quite a lot for there to be uh, real, effective uh, regulation. And and that is still a sort of ongoing bureaucratic battle. Right? There are plenty of the the development-oriented agencies do not want a more powerful environmental regulator. So to, so to what uh, Professor Del Pano was saying, I, th- I think this is part of the reason to be uh, worried and to be c- cynical, because there are sort of political competition forces within the system that could still very well stymie environmental protection.
0: Right. Interesting. Back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier with uh, the pressure from people and, you know, on the ground action. Uh, What about something like the upcoming 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics? I know it might sound trite to hope that that might have an effect, but on the other hand, uh, the previous Olympics actually, um, as per what uh, Professor Del Penna said and as other reports have also indicated, they actually, the previous Olympics added a lot of uh, general public awareness about the pollution issue and so actually it did turn out to have uh, quite a bit of an effect. Do you think, uh, what are your thoughts in this area in our view? Uh,
3: so, I, I mean, I think that's a really interesting approach to environmental regulation. I mean, it's, it's been uh, the sort of regulation through having major international events has been frequent enough in China to almost become a sort of form of regulation. So, you've seen uh, starting uh, you know, almost 10 years ago uh, uh, with a, a, a summit of African leaders. They, they tested sort of re- you know, reducing traffic in Beijing when those leaders were in town and it dropped NOx levels uh, significantly in the span of two days. Every time they've had major, you know, the, the, the 2008 uh, Beijing Summer Olympics, they had the World Expo, uh, the Expo in Shanghai. They had the Asia Games in, in Guangzhou. They've they've done this, this sort of put uh, dramatic cleaning up uh, the environment. And so, uh, you know, people on the ground sort of are cynical and joke about it. You know, the most recent was the APEC meeting in Beijing. So they, mm-hmm. they talked about, well, Beijing's skies were, were APEC blue that day. And it's sort of, sort of the cynical, like, you know, only when the foreigners come mm-hmm. do we clean up. But, but there's something... At least for someone who's looking for opportunities, these are great opportunities to show what can be done, to remind the people that it's absolutely possible to clean up. Right, uh, and then the key is how do you do it in a slightly less draconian way that doesn't mean shutting down all the factors and taking all the cars off the road
0: Right, and implement it on more of a regular basis rather than just for these big international meetings uh, Professor Mintz, what do you think uh, about all this scene from an international point of view? Do you think there's any chance that uh, China will adopt a new climate change treaty with a real bite in Paris coming up here in 2015?
2: Well, China has made an agreement with the United States in sort of a a, a cooperative vein to um, lower its carbon footprint. And um, I think they'll probably stick with that in terms of the negotiations that will go on in Paris. Um, More of the question will be, will it be fully implemented within China? and Not only within China, but in many other countries in the United States, but I think um, uh, that there will be something coming out of Paris that will will be on the positive side. It may be a moderate change over what exists now, but uh, my my hunch is it'll be a step forward and um, hopefully a prelude to further steps to uh, decrease carbon emissions worldwide and other greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Professor Wong, what do you think about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think uh, it'll be really interesting to see what comes out of uh, kind of uh, out of Paris. I, I think uh, what Professor Mintz uh, mentioned about the the U.S.-China uh, cooperative agreements, I think those are important because at, at Copenhagen it was really the kind of conflict between the U.S. and China uh, that uh, took center stage. Now you have um, sort of reasonably ambitious targets i mean i think we most of us think that it uh, could be much more ambitious but i think a good start on on goals um they're being framed in terms of domestic interest you know these things are better for the domestic economy and you know to deal with the kind of domestic opposition to these and and so i think there's uh, the the viewpoint now seems to be look we're not going to get a Kyoto style binding treaty the, the idea is here to get everyone on board that this is in your interest and we're going to start the long road to uh, making this work. I think the scientists recognize that what we have on the table now is not nearly enough and but uh, you know we, I, I think we need to get started somewhere and we, we've had some good initial steps here.
0: And it sounds like you both have hope that that will actually happen. yeah hopefully hopefully.
2: Yeah, no, I'm I'm encouraged by uh, what Alex was saying about the um, consolidation of uh, smaller plants into, into larger ones and some plant closures. That would really be different from the pattern that existed in the United States, where there were very few plant closures. And there was sort of a philosophy that, uh, you know, we'll just let the uh, dirty technology sort of phase out as it was replaced by newer, cleaner technology, that didn't work out very well, at least in the case of power plants in the United States. Now, to the extent that there is consolidation into larger industries and actual plant closures going on in China, I think it may have a better chance of succeeding. Um, A key part of this has to be the the under-resourcing of environmental protection bureaus, and uh, there's a need for more monitoring, there's a need for more inspectors. And uh, Alex suggested that's all sort of in play internally within China. Uh, I think that that will be quite crucial in the end. I mean, we have some similar problems with uh, undersizing of environmental protection uh, governmental agencies, and um, uh, I think that will uh, really be very, very important. There's there's, um, sort of a paucity of data, uh, as far as I know, coming out about uh, uh, what the state of the environment is in China? I mean, um, you know, the U.S. Embassy has done monitoring on the roof, famously of the embassy building in Beijing, and uh, what the situation is in other parts of the country along the Yangtze Valley, where there's lots of industry, and in other large cities, in um, uh, some of the southern industrial areas. I don't think that that I don't know if the government has a handle on it. It's certainly not something that uh, has been um, made publicly available, and there's there's a, a real need for at least for that data to be gathered, if it isn't being, and, and it would be much better, I think, if it were uh, made available in a transparent way.
0: So, Professor Wong, that raises the question of whether uh, the decision makers and lawmakers in China might be willing to learn from uh, uh, what perhaps has happened in the United States and the mistakes we've made here uh, and learn from that in their implementing and and making data available um, in China.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh – one thing that's uh, very interesting about the Chinese approach is that there's been a lot of engagement with in particular Americans and, and uh, Europeans um, and uh, to a certain extent other countries like Japan and um, uh, some of the d- more developed countries in Asia but uh, primarily uh, the US and EU on trying to see how, how they did it but I think there's also a real um, debate within China about you know can we just sort of import Things from the outside, or do we have to do it our own way? Uh, there's kind of a lot of uh, discussion about that, okay. and so I think uh, there's a lot of value in learning from the countries that have, have gone ahead. You don't have to reinvent the wheel on standards, for example. A lot of all the science that goes into these standards, you know, you can uh, start with the the work as, as a lot of countries do, start with the work that the U.S. And, and and the EU have done. But there are also opportunities in China that you might not think of, given you know, environment regulation, the U.S. developed in a particular way because of particular politics, particular stage of economic development. Uh, you know, I think the consolidation thing points at a solution that is available in China just because it's sort of an earlier stage of development, that they're being forced to focus on um, on environmental protection that um, maybe was not, it, it just was maybe too costly at, at, at that point. To, to use as a strategy in the u.s at that time and and also not as as politically possible you know the, the government can't just order shutdowns of, of factories and things like that um, right. so, sure. so I, I think it's both they can borrow and and they need to innovate on their own
0: great okay anything uh, else from any of well, you Go I ahead. Mean, just one uh, yeah. last point i
2: over the summer read a book uh, called the Empress Dower sishi Empress Dowager Sishi by uh, jong Chong and uh it uh, uh, it's a it's it's a biography of uh, the, the leader of China in the 19th century, and this whole uh, sort of uh, uh, approach avoidance uh, uh, phenomenon with regard to foreign uh, technology and and foreign customs and so on is is not new. <laughs> it was very mm-hmm. much the 19th century in China, and uh, it's still uh, you know I I think it's it's just a strand of of Chinese culture, there seems to be a conflict between uh, sort of looking inward to China and with its long history and its, uh, and its customs and uh, looking outward and, and learn from the West and in some ways imitate what's being done in the West. So I think this is you know, kind of part of a, a, a longer running theme or leitmotif in, in Chinese
0: culture. Great. Thank you. Professors Wong and Mitz, thank you so much for uh, giving us both uh, at the same time hope for being optimistic, but also still a little bit of grounds for still remaining a little bit skeptical towards these many exciting new developments in China. Thank you. Thanks for participating. Thank you for listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast, co-sponsored by the University of South Dakota School of Law and the American branch of the International Law Association. The Podbean website for this podcast has links to the speaker's information.